Eagles Entertainment. Compassionate and trusted care. Clinical expertise. It's the cornerstone of NovaCare Rehabilitation and why they're the leading provider of physical therapy throughout the Delaware Valley. Don't let aches and pains or any injury slow you down. Schedule an appointment today at NovaCare.com. The Philadelphia Eagles choose NovaCare, so can you. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. Welcome back to Return Game, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm Rob Ellis. And I'm Derek Gunn. The 1970s were a decade so full of Eagles excitement that we had to split it into two episodes. So here we are in the late 70s. Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy were the most popular TV shows. The first in vitro birth happened. Jimmy Carter was in the White House. And in Dallas, a very meta moment. The soap opera Dallas debuted in 1978. But on the gridiron, in 1978, the Eagles didn't manage to beat the boys in either of the regular season matchups. But they still secured a wild card spot, so they reached the playoffs for the first time since 1960. But they got knocked out by the Atlanta Falcons. Dallas played the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl XIII. And they lost. The score was the Steelers 35, Dallas 31. By 1979, Coach Dick Vermeil and his band of passionate underdogs were feeling pretty confident. We were a good football team. You know, people forget the fifth game of that season. We beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were world champions and undefeated. We beat them at home. Leaning up to that Monday night matchup against Dallas, the Eagles had been on a losing streak, three in a row. Plus, they were playing in Dallas, and the Birds had never won at Texas Stadium. So Ron Jaworski was well aware this game was a big deal. Monday Night Football was very, very special. The national audience was unbelievable. You know, number one, your family and friends can watch the games all the time in, in a big crowd, and it's usually a game where they put, you know, the top teams on. So we knew going down to Texas Stadium on Monday Night Football, a team that we knew we had to eventually surpass, it was a huge game for our football team. So the pressure was on. The pressure was definitely on, and even Ray Didinger believed the team were long shots. There wasn't anybody that thought they could go down there and win, including me. Uh, I mean, we just thought that uh, this is going to be another typical Eagles trip to Dallas that's going to come away with a big L. Now is a good time to bring Merrill Reese back into the story. He started as the voice of the Eagles in 1977, and he believed in the guys. I could feel the excitement build because the Eagles were coming on. The Eagles were trying to take the turf and rule the division. And it was a huge game for this team. And I remember going into this game thinking, can the Eagles beat them? Going into this game, the Cowboys were feeling pretty calm and were heavily favored. But they had a lot of respect for Coach Vermeil. And as Charlie Waters and his teammates knew, the Eagles could surprise you. They were the sleeping giant. We always felt like if they could start a winning season and get a winning streak going. It'd be hard to keep your foot on their throat so that uh, they would stop progressing. By 1979, the Eagles had assembled a roster that was pretty capable of winning football games. The Eagles were solid on both sides of the ball. They had the Jaworski and Montgomery and Carmichael. Uh, those were their great weapons. Uh, Keith Kreffley, the, uh, the tight end. Guy Morris, the center. Woody Peoples and P.E. Payroll, the guards. 
Stan Walters, and Jerry Sizemore, the tackles. On Sunday night, before the game, Coach Vermeil assembled his players for a final meeting. He had been preparing for this moment. The night before the game, he goes into the hotel meeting room and starts off the meeting the way he starts off many meetings over the years where he says, okay, what's it going to take to beat the Dallas Cowboys? And the players had heard this so many times by now. You know, we got to run for this many yards. We've got to win the turnover battle. We've got to win time of possession. All the talking points that he had always had about, we have to do this, 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 this. And the players thought that's what they were going to hear yet again. But what Dick said was, what's it going to take to beat the Dallas Cowboys? Just another 24 hours. And he walked out of the room. Coach Vermeil's pep talks worked a bit too well on Jaworski. I always had a, a pregame problem. I got too amped up. I did. And I, I knew in this environment against this team on this stage, I, I had to calm myself down. I had to get in a zone, a comfort zone where I wasn't too amped up, but still fired because when you walk on that field, uh, it's not a walk in the park. Tony Franklin will kick off for the Philadelphia Eagles. He does it without shoe, without sock, and he puts a deep two strings. Just over a minute into the game, the Cowboys scored. You could almost hear the groans all the way from Philly. Thousands of Eagles fans thinking, not again. We just can't take it. But it didn't phase Jaworski. It doesn't bother me at all. And I, not only for that game, but I can speak of any of the hundreds of games I played. One score down means nothing. But then Harold Carmichael scores on a 32-yard pass from Ron Jaworski. I remember the play because it, it is shown on a lot of highlight films. Uh, even to this date, it was a fourth down play. And whenever I look at that play, I kind of realized how lucky I was because it was a fourth down play. We went play action, and Harold had a poco, which is a post-corner option. So it's called a poco. So depending on, on how the defender played, he would either go inside or outside. In other words, if the defender played inside, he'd go to the corner. defender played outside, he'd go to the post. So – as I dropped back and there was pressure on me from the defensive rush of the Cowboys, I didn't get a defined read. I didn't know if Harold was going to the corner or going to the post. I guessed. I guessed because I didn't get clear definition that he was going to go to the post. And as the ball left my hand, I seen the corner jump outside. Harold went to the post and I said, oh my God, I guessed right. So, and Harold caught it. We got a touchdown on the play. So it was one of those, it was 50-50. To the right, as Jaworski spins and goes with play action. He's looking for Carmichael, who takes it at the five. He's in for a touchdown. Harold Carmichael had Cliff Harris draped all over him, but he fought him off. A 32-yard touchdown as the Eagles gambled on play action, and it worked. Cliff Harris says he doesn't remember his great plays, but he does remember the ones where he got beat, and he got beat on this one. I was man-to-man on on Harold, and and in this particular down and distance, I anticipated him running a corner route, a route that goes up and breaks to the inside and then breaks back to the outside. So Harold knew that I knew that, I think. And I was playing him to the outside of the way where he was going. So he made a little fake like he was going to that route. And that was the route that was actually called. He told me later the route that was actually called was a route that I was prepared for. 
But Harold broke that route and ran another route, ran a post route, went to the inside instead of the outside. And that's when Jaworski held it for just a second and waited for Harold to make a move. And he went to the post route and beat me and to the corner. That's So out of 10 years of playing and thousands of plays, you bring that one up for me. Then with the game tied. Ron Jaworski went down and Eagle momentum was in danger. Harvey Martin hit me and knocked me out of the game. When Ron Jaworski got knocked out of the game, I was concerned about Ron Jaworski and could the Eagles go on with the backup quarterback who hardly ever played. And then in comes a guy named Johnny Walton. Johnny Walton in in practice. I mean, threw a soft, nice touch uh, ball, and I knew he would just step right in and do a very good job. I never had any doubts about uh, Johnny. We call him easy. Walton backs up. He sets. He's looking, looking, firing deep. Does he have it complete for the touchdown to Charlie Smith on the far side? Charlie Smith takes the pass from John Walton, and the Eagles take the lead. No one knew who Johnny Walton was. I had great confidence in Johnny. I knew what he could do. Heading into halftime, Tony Franklin comes out to kick a field goal for the Eagles. He lines it up. Tony hits it. It is going. It is going. It is going. It is good. It is good. A 59-yard field goal by Tony Franklin gives the Eagles a 17-7 lead, and they are mobbing Tony Franklin. That is a new Eagles record. In those days, you didn't expect to make a 59-yarder. You thought that you maybe you'd get close. And... Tony was only a 50-something percent successful kicker anyway. But when he made that, that was a big lift. Sizemore was floored because Tony Franklin had a particular way he liked to take his kicks. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And he's the little barefoot Aggie kicker in Philadelphia. Tony Franklin, it was like, wow. Vermeil loved him, so I guess we had to love him. But the kid is talented. Good. And then he hit that ball just right, and woo, that was wonderful. That kick cost the Cowboys. Here's what Tom Landry said at the time. It just took something out of us. It was a spectacular kick. We didn't think he could kick it that far, or we would have taken an offsides penalty against the Eagles on the play before. We couldn't believe it. I think Eagles fans couldn't really believe it either. Getting on the scoreboard first was huge. Then Jaworski gets hurt and is out, and this Johnny Walton, who no one really has heard of, comes in and scores. I know. And then Tony Franklin, a rookie barefoot kicker, made the second longest kick in NFL history. And all of this happened before halftime. The halftime pep talk from Coach Vermeil was short and to the point. I said, you know something? We've, we've taken everything Dallas could give us and handled it successfully. Now let's just go out and kick their ass. The Cowboys set to kick off to the Philadelphia Eagles, who have not turned the football over thus far tonight. And guess who was on the field to play again? Number seven, Ron Jaworski. There was no concussion protocol. A quarterback could be not silly. They drag him to the sideline. They give him some smelling salts. They tell us that he had been dinged, or they tell us that he had had his bell rung, and then... One series later, he'd be back in the lineup. And, of course, that's what happened. Jaworski came back. By the way, this was the concussion protocol. How many fingers? Two, you're okay. (laughs) What's your wife's name? Liz, you're okay. 
It was great to see Rondé was okay for Ron to get back into the game and do what he does. With Jaworski back, the Cowboys knew they were up for a fight in that Monday night game. Jaworski started the second half with a pass to Carmichael. Jaworski back. He's setting. He's looking. Boats a pass for Carmichael. Touchdown, Eagles! Carmichael leaps in the air and catches the pass over Aaron Kyle, and the Eagles increase their lead to 23-7. He caught it and scored, and I, I don't remember. I was not in a very good mood. In the fourth quarter, Roger Staubach, playing with a bruised thigh, attempted a comeback. He threw two touchdown passes, but it wasn't enough. Wilbert Montgomery went on to score one more touchdown. The final score was 31-21 Eagles. That's Your whole year is measured by that, your self-worth, uh, the whole stress, and especially Dallas. Uh, being from Texas. And when your dad only wears your team cap when you're on the field, playing Dallas and beating Dallas takes on a different meaning. You know, I would come home, and if we could manage to beat the Cowgirls, then uh, it would be a good homecoming, you know, because all my pals had stars and junk all over their car, and it was crazy. But uh, it was sure fun to beat them and come home, for sure. We were ecstatic. We proved we could beat a team that we had focused on for three years, uh, that we could beat them. And I, I remember the celebratory mood in the locker room after that game, uh, you know, that, that we had beaten the Dallas Cowboys. And, for you know, when you focus on a team for years, it means an awful lot when you accomplish that goal. Here's Coach Ramil to wrap up that historic Monday night win. It was as if we'd already run the Super Bowl. You know, it just it was such a relief for me as a young coach and my staff It was a relief of the pressure we had put on ourselves to get to the level where we could play well enough to beat Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. It was not easy to do for anybody. And so I I think it it did that, you know, and uh, it's a reward. It eliminates second-guessing yourself. It humbles you. It, it, It makes you be so grateful for the effort that all the people around you had put in to get to this point. You almost wish the season would end there. The Birds finished the 79 season with a wild card victory against the Chicago Bears. They would be knocked out by Tampa Bay one week later. The season ended with a respectable record of 12-6. and six. The season wrapping up on such solid footing gave the Eagles a well-deserved, upbeat outlook for the upcoming year. Coach Vermeule's core group of guys were returning, and there was a feeling this could be the year. But Ray Dittinger reminds us of the one obstacle of making it all the way. Keep in mind that for five years now, Dick Vermeule has been telling the Eagles, we have to beat the Dallas Cowboys. If we want to get to the Super Bowl, we have to beat the Cowboys. We have to get past the Cowboys. During the 1980 regular season, Dallas and Philadelphia had their customary two showdowns. The Birds had bested the Cowboys once, but in a game only weeks ahead of the conference championship, Dallas won. This left the team and the city with mixed feelings about their chances. Great hope, but a fear of great impending disappointment because the Cowboys were the king. They were they were the ruling team. I think Philadelphians were optimistic as they would be, hopeful, but not confident. And the rest of the nation thought it was almost a fait accompli that the Cowboys would wipe out the Eagles and head into Super Bowl fifteen. But as Mel Reese tells it, Coach Vermeil liked to dabble in psychological warfare. 
Dick Vermeil that week told the media, we're playing this great Cowboy team. I hope we can stay on the field with them. He started lowering the expectations saying about the Cowboys. They're really going to be tough. He gave them the feeling of, well, we're the poor little Eagles and we'll just do our best not to embarrass ourselves. Coach tried to use every motivational tactic possible. Wilbur Montgomery was banged up. Uh, you know, the reports were he was banged up and not practicing well and a lot of yada yada in Tampa. Uh, but Wilbur practiced great all week. But I don't think the Cowboys uh, thought he was going to be healthy. And there was more psychological warfare to come. Everybody knows how superstitious players can be, from what they eat before the game to what shoe they tie first. For Dallas, it could have been the jerseys. When we played at home, we wore the white jerseys. And when we played on the road, we wore the white jerseys. The NFL Customs said that on the road, at away games, the opposing team was supposed to wear their dark jerseys. But Charlie Waters and the Cowboys managed to get away with not doing what the other teams were doing. So we ended up wearing like our white jerseys like 85% of the time, which means we won a hell of a lot more games with our white jerseys. And uh, that was one psychological advantage. It definitely inspired other teams to hate us even more. Well, Eagles GM Jim Murray picked up on this white jersey versus blue jersey suspicion, and they decided to use it to their advantage. Coach Ramil was on board because he was looking for every possible edge. I'd coached against the Cowboys when I was an assistant at the Rams, and that, and uh, I'd always heard that they were more confident playing in their white jersey. They'd play wear white jerseys at home. I had the choice of jersey we are going to wear, so I wore a jersey that would force them to wear a jersey that they didn't usually like to wear or didn't think they played as well in. That's all. It was. I I don't think it made any difference in the outcome of ball game, but it was just one thing add to the preparation. What did Dallas have to say about the whole urban legend of the jerseys? As a matter of fact, I like the blue jerseys. I enjoyed wearing them. Now, I did know that the, the, the statistics were against us, but we still won. Let's say we didn't win as strongly as we did with our white jerseys because we won probably about 85% of our games. But we also won 65% of our games with the blue jerseys, so right around that number. And that's much. That's usually more than Philadelphia would win, which is not not going to make me very popular with the Philadelphia fans. <laughs> it's not, Charlie, but we appreciate your honesty. Even Tom Landry weighed in, saying at the time, the psychological warfare has begun. The jerseys are a typical move. It makes a story. They are just trying to distract us, but the best team will walk off the field the winner. Now, here you are, five years in, you're one game away from the Super Bowl, and it is the Dallas Cowboys. It's not the Falcons, it's not the Packers. It's the Dallas Cowboys. It's the team you've been talking about and pointing towards for five years now. And they're coming into your place on a bitter cold day with your fans there behind you. From the moment that we all got out of bed, it was, uh, and you can kind of tell, uh-oh, Mojo's rolling today. This is going to be fun. The city was so charged up. I almost get emotional. I think about it, you know, It was one of those moments where, you know, we're going to do something special. Game day, January 11th, 1981. 
The game the city had been anticipating for decades was finally here. And Jerry Sizemore and Ron Jaworski were ready. Wind chill was about minus nine. And uh, it was just, wow, this is crazy what's going on. And um, they didn't like it, and we loved it. And it just got better and better and better. And I walked out of the tunnel at Veterans Stadium, and there were garbage trucks going up and down the field, breaking up the ice. <laughs> it was so cold. I'm thinking, oh, my God, we got to play this in like two and a half hours. It was just a, a surreal look to see, because at that time, uh, the garbage trucks were parked like outside the stadium. There was a, that's where the real disposal area was for the garbage in the city. And all these trucks were there. And I guess the field was so frozen, they had the trucks come over that morning and break up the ice on the field. Well, it was very, very cold, as everyone remembers. The wind chill factor was below zero. But it didn't feel cold on the field. I remember talking to players and steam coming out of their mouth from the temperature difference and all that kind of stuff. And I never heard one complaint from anybody, and I felt like it was 90 degrees. It was to our advantage, believe me. There was no place more welcoming or unfriendly than Veteran Stadium at 12.30 p.m. for the kickoff. I mean, I've been covering football for 50 years now, and I've been in all sorts of stadiums. Um, but I've, I've never felt a team had a greater home field advantage than what the Eagles had that day. That was a hostile place that the Cowboys walked into. Tom Landry was in the visitor's locker room going through his game plan with his team. He was not known for his pep talks. As a matter of fact, it was kind of a running joke with us as players, you know. But we had so much respect for him. We knew that he didn't depend on emotion. To You want to be emotionally in charge when you get out on the field because it's do or die. It's you against the other person in combat. But Tom Landry would just say, okay, we've prepared greatly this week. Uh, we've got a game plan that's going to be efficient. Let's go out there and execute the game plan. Done. That was his fire-up speech. Every game. Over in the Eagles locker room, a different scene was unfolding. The locker room was ready to roll, and the city was so excited. And it was like, we're all in. You know, we're not, we don't have anything else. we got to win or we're dead. I'm a pep talk guy. I don't know if it makes any difference. I think once they get on and get hit in the mouth the first play, it goes away. But I, I, I believe mental preparation is critical in the NFL. So motivational uh, preparation is critical because there's no bad teams. Years back, when we were struggling to win five and six and seven games, a lot of people used to take the Eagles for granted. A lot of guys have heard me say, never allow anybody to take you for granted. I have a feeling that the Cowboys are sort of taking us for granted right now. We're here because we've earned the right to be here, and we've played well enough to be here. And we can beat this football team. If the Dallas Cowboys are going to take us for granted, we'll whip their ass. I prepared with great confidence. I talked about winning. I talked about beating. But when you talk about beating somebody, you talk about how it's got to be done as well, not just to the score. Oh, we're going to beat them 25 to nothing. You talk about what it's going to take. But see, at that time, now they believe you. They, they hang on each sentence. They hang on what you're saying. You know, you've got complete trust of the team. And uh, I, I told them that I, I felt the Dallas Cowboys might come in here 
having been in championship games many years in a row, that uh, they might be a little overconfident. And if, if they took us for granted in any way, it would be to our advantage because we can beat them. The Dallas Cowboys learned that when you come to Philly to play, you are not only up against the squad, but you have the most passionate fans in sports in your face and in your ears. 71,522 fans filled the frigid bleachers. Put your helmets on. That was, <laughs> that was the first thing they tell us to do in case somebody threw batteries out, you know, and hit us on the head or something. So, uh, and they booed. And most of the time, boos don't get, it's not as loud as cheers. But their boos were just as loud as their cheers. And they booed us. They hated us. And it's great to be hated. And that lets you know that we're doing something right. It started to sink in for Bill Berge and Harold Carmichael why the Eagles had to endure tough practices, team bonding, and all that mental preparation. All I can remember was I was so tuned in for the Dallas Cowboys. And coming down that ramp, my only thought was, You've never played a perfect game, Bill Berge, but whatever you do, try your very hardest to play a perfect game today. I was just so fired up. I I needed to get that catch, and I needed to get hit because that calmed me down a little bit. Because, oh, you know, before a game, I'm, you know, know, I got tears going down my eyes, you know, and I'm firing my eyes. And not that I was physical around beating the walls or anything like that. It was just, you know, everything bottled up in me you know, ready for me to release and ready to play football. The crowd was as loud as I've ever heard a crowd. And I I could still kind of hear that noise. It was the loudest I definitely had ever heard Veterans Stadium. But the roar before that game of the team coming out of the tunnel, it just resonated. Like this is, you know, it's not a normal game, but it is not a normal game. You know, this is crazy. And it was kind of what we anticipated it was Philadelphia. It's, it's all we expected, you know. It was all that we thought it would be. We got into a game with Dallas, and Dick Vermeil had us so very well prepared for this game that when I walked down the tunnel onto the field, I could honestly say to myself it was the only time in 13 years that I knew 100%, not 99, 100% that we were going to beat the Dallas Cowboys. This is the National Football Conference Championship game with the Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys set to get at it. The winner just 60 football minutes away from the Super Bowl. Raynard Wilson kneels down at the 35 to hold the ball from Tony. There is a swirling wind in the neighborhood of 15 miles an hour. There's the whistle. Here's the kickoff. It was on, and Philadelphia was taking full advantage of the fan fervor. I can still remember... Wilbert Montgomery exploding off the right side between blocks on the right side of Jerry Sizemore, the right tackle, and Woody Peoples, the right guard. We thought we had a chance. Uh, We got good field position. We thought we had a chance to play action pass to to hit a touchdown. So I came out of my play action fake, and I think we would have had a shot at it, but there was pressure on me. I had to throw before the receiver broke open. And just as I was throwing, I got hit, and Randy White hit me right in the stomach. So the pass was incomplete. And Jaworski had another shot. So the second down, I already, I already knew what the second down play was. We had our scripted plays, and uh, it was going to be I right slot split, 47 slant. And I, you know, we knew what the Cowboys were going to do defensively. You studied, you prepared. We got the defense we wanted. 
uh, handed off to Wilbert and scooted to the left, cut back to the right, got some great blocks on the right side of our offensive line, and, and shoot, man, you're right down at the end zone. Jaworski gives off inside, running with Montgomery up the right side. Look, 30, 25, 40, 15, 10, touchdown! As he was getting close to that goal line, the crowd was coming to a crescendo. I could just feel, I could feel the noise. I could feel it, not, not hear it, I could feel it. My body was kind of like vibrating. I mean, it was, it was the loudest, and I played in dome stadiums and you name it. It was the loudest crowd I had ever heard it was that veteran stadium crowd when Wilbur went to the end zone. And I always tell people, as I saw that number 31 disappear into the end zone to my left, I knew, and everybody in the Delaware Valley knew, even though it was the first quarter, that the Eagles were going to go to Super Bowl 15. That might be the only play that the preparation for the play, the design of the play, and the reasons for the play produced a 100% result. Everything worked just as we thought it would. Montgomery's touchdown put him ahead 7 nothing, And then the Cowboys came back and they scored next to me at 7-7. Go set straight ahead. They like him well enough for a Dallas touchdown. A very good-looking and effective drive by Dallas. So even at 7-7, okay, the Cowboys came back. And they're a good team. You would expect them to come back. Hands to Dorsett. Same thing they tried a minute ago to Newhouse, and that ought to do it for the first half. Heading into halftime, the score was tied, and the game was progressing as Coach Ramil had planned. I didn't expect to shut him out. I knew we weren't going to have to score a lot of points. And we weren't really a, a magic offensive team. We were pretty physical and very few gimmicks and didn't change a lot from week to week. We just tried to do better what we do thinking if we'd been doing this all year and the opponent only has one week to get ready for us, we still have an edge. Halftime is definitely more cerebral. It's not getting players motivated. We had the lead, so it was a matter of don't beat ourselves at that point. Keep doing what we're doing. Stay with the game plan. You're going to make mistakes. Other teams force mistakes, but this could be our game if we don't blow it. The score didn't seem to phase Carmichael. We still had time to play football. Halftime, I mean, we just take a breath, collect ourselves, and go back out and play and win the football game. And in Dallas's locker room, spirits were also still high. We knew we were in a battle. We knew that. We knew we were going to get the very best of Philadelphia the second half. Philadelphia was the stronger club in the first half. Let's see what's going to happen in the second as we go back down to the action. We're ready to start half number two. And Rapgill Sepien gets it underway. Dallas's upbeat attitude was quickly dashed as the second half of this championship game got underway. Tony Franklin, the barefoot kicker from Texas, nailed a 26-yard field goal. With the score 10-7, a fullback named Leroy Harris from Savannah, Georgia, stepped up. Fortunately, the NFC Championship game in 1980, he thought it was Jim Brown. And he was just running over people. Um, you, you look at him running the football. He made a great touchdown run, people bouncing off him. But then when you look at the game, he, he was great in pass protection. Uh, he did everything he was supposed to do. So Leroy Harris really had a solid game from the fullback position. Coach Ramil knew to maintain their lead, they needed a different type of play, something Tom Landry and the Cowboys were not expecting. We decided to run a trap down inside against the Cowboys. Traps don't often work, but Vermeil explained why this one did. But we felt if we get them in a down and distant situation where they'd be coming after us, we'd have a chance, and, and Leroy took it on in. It was a very successful trap play. Jaworski on the delay to Leroy Harris up the middle across the five. Touchdown, Eagles! Harris scored the third quarter finish with the Birds leading the boys by 10. All the Eagles had to do was maintain that fourth quarter lead, only 15 minutes away. 
maybe the longest of Sizemore's career. So we had control of the ball, and we were just running out the clock. It was flop on time. And, you know, it's third down, and then it's fourth down, and the crowd, the noise level in the vet would start vibrating everything. It was in all of those years of frustration, and all of that was just flooding past, and we were going to win, and we got, wow. Had to be five minutes of knowing that you're going to win. And, you know, as the (laughs) clock ticked down very slowly, the whole stadium, I think everywhere, even Willie Penn was dancing around up there. It was just a tremendous uh, payback for all the pain and suffering and heartache of being Philly and beating Dallas, America's team. just celebrating I raise my arms you know and you know we all saying we're going going down to New Orleans we're going to the Super Bowl and um, after that we all ran into the locker room and I turned around and here's my wife right behind me I said get out of here her and a couple other wives ran in the locker room too I said get your butt out of here (laughs) but everybody was so excited about that I still have the game ball and there was a picture taken by uh, one of the photographers at the game. And I had both arms around the football because it it was the NFC championship game. And I have that picture with me running off the field with the ball, and I have the ball in my trophy case. It's very sentimental. And the score in that game was 20 to 7. And the score was not indicative of the way the game went. We beat the Cowboys so bad it was incredible. So after the game, we're all excited because we have accomplished the goal that we really set out to have, and that was to overtake the Dallas Cowboys. And then while we were hooping and hollering, we're saying to ourselves, wait a minute, we got another game to play, and they just happened to call it the Super Bowl. The Eagles were headed to their first Super Bowl and their first championship game since 1960, and man, Those Philadelphia fans. You couldn't hear. It was just like a (sighs) roar. It was awesome. And you could feel that, wow, there's a lot of frustration, frustrated Eagles fans that are venting today because it was the loudest stadium atmosphere I've ever been into. It was beautiful. Listen to this crowd, ladies and gentlemen. I have never seen anything like it. Dallas and Charlie Waters were not accustomed to losing big games, and they certainly were not used to losing to the Eagles. We really don't know how to act when we lost. It was something different, uncomfortable. Coach Landry would would be just as stoic and steady as he would be after a victory. Uh, He would just say, give credit to the team that they beat us. We could have played better, so we'll work on trying to play better the next week. That's, That's how he went about it. And it's 
especially against Philadelphia. My gosh, knocked us out of the playoffs. The Philadelphia fans were happy, happy, happy. And they should have been because they had a great team that year. You can hear in this clip, after that historic win, back in the Eagles locker room, Coach Vermeil let his emotions and gratitude flow. To be able to call Sizemore a champion. Hey. To be able to call him uh, Bill Berge a champion. All right. Randy Logan. All right. John Bunning. The guys that have been here all five years. Carl Harrison. This guy right behind me. <laughs> Guy Morris. To be able to call you guys a champion, it's the greatest thrill I've ever had in coaching. And thank you for what you've done for me. On January 25th, 1981, the Eagles played the Oakland Raiders in Super Bowl 15 in New Orleans. We couldn't get back to that same emotional, physical, uh, mental level that we had with the Dallas Cowboys. I don't want to say that that was our Super Bowl, but that kind of was our Super Bowl. It was not the fairy tale ending the team had dreamed of for the 1980 season, but they had finally overtaken Dallas when it counted, and that, for dedicated fans, may have been the only victory that truly mattered. Up next, we head deeper into the 1980s. The Eagles go from strength to strength. New players join the team. My name is Clyde Simmons. I play defensive end. I wore number 96. Seth Joyner, I played outside linebacker. I was with the team, I was drafted in 1986. Played for eight years through 1994. My name is Mike Golick. I wore number 90 and I was a defensive tackle with the Eagles from 1987 to 1993. Can the Cowboys come back from their loss to the Eagles or do the Birds finally have the upper hand? And one thing's for sure, The Eagles were going to make the Cowboys work for any success that was coming their way. They were a dominant defense in a way that I hadn't seen many defenses be. I mean, that particular defense ranked with the Bears of 85. They ranked with the Steel Curtain of Pittsburgh. I mean, they ranked with the greatest defense I ever saw. You've been listening to Return Game, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by Novacare Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Rob Ellis, along with my co-host, Derek Gunn. Thanks for listening. If you want to dive deeper into the birds and boys rivalry, head over to PhiladelphiaEagles.com slash birds, boys, bad blood, where you'll find photos, videos, additional audio, and even more behind the scenes content. Compassionate and trusted care. Clinical expertise. It's the cornerstone of NovaCare rehabilitation and why they're the leading provider of physical therapy throughout the Delaware Valley. Don't let aches and pains or any injury slow you down. Schedule an appointment today at NovaCare.com. The Philadelphia Eagles choose NovaCare. So can you. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy.